Sections 56 and 57 of The World is Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World is Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R.B. Haldane and J. Kemp. Book 4, The World is Will. Sections 56 and 57. This freedom, this omnipotence, as the expression of which the whole visible world exists and progressively develops in accordance with the laws which belong to the form of knowledge, can now, at the point at which in its most perfect manifestation it has attained to the completely adequate knowledge of its own nature, express itself anew in two ways. Either it wills here at the summit of mental endowment and self-consciousness simply what it willed before blindly and unconsciously, and if so, knowledge always remains its motive in the whole as in the particular case. Or conversely, this knowledge becomes for it a quieter which appeases and suppresses all willing. This is that assertion and denial of the will to live which was stated above in general terms. As in the reference of individual conduct, a general, not a particular manifestation of will, it does not disturb and modify the development of the character, nor does it find its expression in particular actions, but either by an ever more marked appearance of the whole method of action it has followed hitherto, or conversely, by the entire suppression of it, it expresses in a living form the maxims which the will has freely adopted in accordance with the knowledge it has now attained to. By the explanations we have just given of freedom, necessity, and character, we have somewhat facilitated and prepared the way for the clearer development of all this, which is the principal subject of this last book. But we shall have done so still more when we have turned our attention to life itself, the willing or not willing of which is the great question, and have endeavored to find out generally what the will itself, which is everywhere the inmost nature of this life will really attain by its assertion, in what way and to what extent this assertion satisfies or can satisfy the will. In short, what is generally and mainly to be regarded as its position in this, its own world, which is in every relation belong to it. First of all, I wish the reader to recall the passage with which we closed the second book, a passage occasioned by the question which met us then as to the end and aim of the will. Instead of the answer to this question, it appeared clearly before us how, in all the grades of its manifestation, from the lowest to the highest, the will dispenses altogether with a final goal and aim. It always strives, for striving is its sole nature, which no attained goal can put an end to. 
Therefore, it is not susceptible of any final satisfaction, but can only be restrained by hindrances, while in itself it goes on forever. We see this in the simplest of all natural phenomena, gravity, which does not cease to strive and press towards a mathematical center to reach, which would be the annihilation both of itself and matter, and would cease, not cease even if the whole universe were already rolled into one ball. We see it in the other simple natural phenomena. A solid tends towards fluidity either by melting or dissolving, for only so will its chemical forces be free. Rigidity is the imprisonment in which it is held by cold. The fluid tends towards the gaseous state into which it passes at once as soon as all pressure is removed from it. No body is without relationship, that is, without tendency or without desire and longing, as Jakob Burma would say. Electricity transmits its inner self-repulsion to infinity, though the mass of the earth absorbs the effect. Galvanism is certainly so long as the pile is working, an aimless, unceasingly repeated act of repulsion and attraction. The existence of the plant is just such a restless, never-satisfied striving, a ceaseless tendency through ever-ascending forms till the end, the seed, becomes a new starting point. And this repeated ad infinitum, nowhere an end, nowhere a final satisfaction, nowhere a resting place. It will also be remembered from the second book that the multitude of natural forces and organized forms everywhere strive with each other for the matter in which they desire to appear, for each of them only possesses what it has wrested from the others, and thus a constant internecine war is waged, from which, for the most part, arises the resistance through which that striving, which constitutes the inner nature of everything, is at all points hindered. Struggles in vain, yet from its nature cannot leave off. Toils on laboriously till this phenomenon dies, when others eagerly seize its place and its matter. We have long since recognized this striving, which constitutes the kernel and in itself of everything, as identical with that which in us where it manifests itself most distinctly in the light of the fullest consciousness, is called will. Its hindrance, through an obstacle which places itself between it and its temporary aim, we call suffering, and, on the other hand, its attainment of the end, satisfaction, well-being, happiness, we may also transfer this terminology to the phenomena of the unconscious world, for though weaker in degree, they are identical in nature. Then we see them involved in constant suffering and without any continuing happiness, for all effort springs from defect, from discontent with one's estate. 
is thus suffering so long as it is not satisfied. But no satisfaction is lasting. Rather, it is always merely the starting point of a new effort. The striving we see everywhere hindered in many ways, everywhere in conflict, and therefore always under the form of suffering. Thus, if there is no final end of striving, there is no measure and end of suffering. But what we only discover in unconscious nature by sharpened observation and with an effort presents itself distinctly to us in the intelligent world and the life of animals whose constant suffering is easily proved. But without lingering over these intermediate grades, we shall turn to the life of man, in which all this appears with the greatest distinctness, illuminated by the clearest knowledge. For as the phenomenon of the will becomes more complete, the suffering also becomes more and more apparent. In the plant there is as yet no sensibility and therefore no pain. A certain very small degree of suffering is experienced by the lowest species of animal life, infusoria and radiata. Even in insects the capacity to feel and suffer is still limited. It first appears in a high degree with the complete nervous system of vertebrate animals, and always in a higher degree the more intelligence develops. Thus, in proportion as knowledge attains to distinctness, as consciousness ascends, pain also increases, and therefore reaches its highest degree in man. And then again, the more distinctly a man knows, the more intelligent he is, the more pain he has. The man who is gifted with genius suffers most of all. In this sense, that is, with reference to the degree of knowledge in general, not mere abstract rational knowledge, I understand and use here that saying of the preacher, qui auget scientiam auget at dolorum. That philosophical painter or painting philosopher Tischbein has very beautifully expressed the accurate relation between the degree of consciousness and that of suffering by exhibiting it in a visible and clear form in a drawing. The upper half of his drawing represents women whose children have been stolen and who in different groups and attitudes express in many ways deep maternal pain, anguish, and despair. The lower half of the drawing represents sheep whose lambs have been taken away. They are arranged and grouped in precisely the same way, so that every human head, every human attitude of the upper half, has below a brute head an attitude corresponding to it. Thus we see distinctly how the pain, which is possible in the dull brute consciousness, is related to the violent grief, which only becomes possible through distinctness of knowledge and clearness of consciousness. We desire to consider in this way in human existence the inner essential destiny of will. 
everyone will easily recognize that same destiny expressed in various degrees in the life of the brutes, only more weakly, and may also convince himself to his own satisfaction from the suffering animal world how essential to all life is suffering. At every grade that is enlightened by knowledge, the will appears as an individual. The human individual finds himself as finite in infinite space and time, and consequently as a vanishing quantity compared with them. He is projected into them, and on account of their unlimited nature, he has always a merely relative, never absolute when and where of his existence. For his place and duration are finite parts of what is infinite and boundless. His real existence is only in the present, whose unchecked flight into the past is a constant transition into death, a constant dying. For his past life, apart from its possible consequences for the present, and the testimony regarding the will that is expressed in it, is now entirely done with, dead, and no longer anything. And therefore, it must be as a matter of reason, indifferent to him whether the content of that past was pain or pleasure. But the present is always passing through his hands into the past. The future is quite uncertain and always short. Thus his existence, even we, when we consider only its formal side, is a constant hurrying of the present into the dead past, a constant dying. But if we look at it from the physical side, it is clear that, as our walking is admittedly merely a constantly prevented falling, the life of our body is only a constantly prevented dying an ever-postponed death. Finally, in the same way, the activity of our mind is a constantly deferred ennui. Every breath we draw wards off the death that is constantly intruding upon us. In this way, we fight with it every moment, and again, as at longer intervals, through every meal we eat, every sleep we take, every time we warm ourselves, in the end death must conquer, for we become subject to him through birth, and he only plays for a little while with his prey before he swallows it up. We pursue our life, however, with great interest and much solicitude as long as possible, as we blow out a soap bubble as long and as large as possible, although we know perfectly well that it will burst. We saw that the inner being of unconscious nature is a constant striving without end and without rest, and this appears to us much more distinctly when we consider the nature of brutes and man. Willing and striving is its whole being, which may be very well compared to an unquenchable thirst. But the basis of all willing is need, deficiency, and thus pain. Consequently, the nature of brutes and man is subject to pain originally and through its very being. 
if, on the other hand, it lacks objects of desire because it is at once deprived of them by a too easy satisfaction, a terrible void and ennui comes over it. That is, its being and existence itself becomes an, an unbearable burden to it. Thus its life swings like a pendulum backwards and forwards between pain and ennui. This has also had to express itself very oddly in this way. After man had transferred all pain and torments to hell, there then remained nothing over for heaven but ennui. But the constant striving which constitutes the inner nature of every manifestation of will obtains its primary and most general foundation at the higher grades of objectification from the fact that here the will manifests itself as a living body with the iron command to nourish it. And what gives strength to this command is just that this body is nothing but the objectified will to live itself. Man, as the most complete objectification of that will, is in like measure also the most necessitous of all beings. He is through and through concrete willing and needing. He is a concretion of a thousand necessities. With these he stands upon the earth, left to himself, uncertain about everything except his own need and misery. Consequently, the care for the maintenance of that existence under exacting demands which are renewed every day occupies, as a rule, the whole of human life. To this, this is directly related the second claim, that of the propagation of the species. At the same time, he is threatened from all sides by the most different kinds of dangers from which it requires constant watchful escape. With cautious steps and casting anxious glances round him, he pursues his path. For a thousand accidents and a thousand enemies lie in wait for him. Thus, he went while yet a savage, thus he goes in civilized life. There is no security for him. Qualibus in tenebris vitae, quantisque periclis, degitur hoc oi, quad cumque est. Lucretius. The life of the great majority is only a constant struggle for this existence itself, with the certainty of losing it at last. But what enables them to endure this wearisome battle is not so much the love of life as the fear of death, which yet stands in the background as inevitable and may come upon them at any moment. Life itself is a sea, full of rocks and whirlpools, which man avoids with the greatest care and solicitude, although he knows that even if he succeeds in getting through with all his efforts and skill, he yet by doing so comes nearer at every step to the greatest, the total inevitable, 
irredeemable shipwreck, death, nay, even steers right upon it. This is the final goal of the laborious voyage, and worse for him than all the rocks from which he has escaped. Now, it is well worth observing that, on the one hand, the suffering and misery of life may easily increase to such an extent that death itself, and the flight from which the whole of life consists, becomes desirable, and we hasten towards it voluntarily. And again, on the other hand, that as soon as want and suffering permit rest to a man, ennui is at once so near that he necessarily requires diversion. The striving after existence is what occupies all living things and maintains them in motion. But when existence is assured, then they know not what to do with it. Thus the second thing that sets them in motion is the effort to get free from the burden of existence, to make it cease to be felt, to kill time, that is, to escape from ennui. Accordingly, we see that almost all men who are secure from want and care, now that at last they have thrown off all other burdens, become a burden to themselves, and regard as a gain every hour they succeed in getting through, and thus every diminution of the very life which till then they have employed all their powers to maintain as long as possible. Henri is by no means an evil to be lightly esteemed. In the end it depicts on the countenance real despair. It makes beings who love each other so little as men do seek each other eagerly, and thus becomes the source of social intercourse. Moreover, even from motives of policy, public precautions are everywhere taken against it, as against other universal calamities. For this evil may drive men to the greatest excesses, just as much as its opposite extreme, famine. The people require panem et circensis. The strict penitentiary system of Philadelphia makes use of ennui alone as a means of punishment, through solitary confinement and idleness, and it is found so terrible that it has even led prisoners to commit suicide. As want is the constant scourge of the people, so ennui is that of the fashionable world. In middle-class life, ennui is represented by the Sunday, and want by the six weekdays. Thus, between desiring and attaining, all human life flows on throughout. The wish is, in its nature, pain. The attainment soon begets satiety. The end was only apparent. Possession takes away the charm. The wish, the need, presents itself under a new form. When it does not, then follows desolateness, emptiness, ennui, as against which the conflict is just as painful as against want. 
that wish and satisfaction should follow each other neither too quickly nor too slowly reduces the suffering which both occasion to the smallest amount and constitutes the happiest life. For that which we might otherwise call the most beautiful part of life, its purest joy, if it were only because it lifts us out of real existence and transforms us into disinterested spectators of it, that is, pure knowledge, which is foreign to all willing, the pleasure of the beautiful, the true delight in art, this is granted only to a very few because it demands rare talents and to these few only as a passing dream and then even these few on account of their higher intellectual power are made susceptible of far greater suffering than duller minds can ever feel and are also placed in lonely isolation by a nature which is obviously different from that of others. Thus here also accounts are squared. But to the great majority of men, purely intellectual pleasures are not accessible. They are almost quite incapable of the joys which lie in pure knowledge. They are entirely given up to willing. If therefore anything is to win their sympathy, to be interesting to them, it must, as is implied in the meaning of the word, in some way excite their will, even if it is only through a distant and merely problematical relation to it. The will must not be left altogether out of the question, for their existence lies far more in willing than in knowing. Action and reaction is their one element. We may find in trifles and everyday occurrences the naive expressions of this quality. Thus, for example, at any place worth seeing they may visit, they write their names. In order thus to react to affect the place since it does not affect them. Again, when they see a strange, rare animal, they cannot easily confine themselves to merely observing it, they must rouse it, tease it, play with it, merely to experience action and reaction. But this need for excitement of the will manifests itself very specially in the discovery and support of card playing, which is quite peculiarly the expression of the miserable side of human beings. But whatever nature and fortune may have done, whoever a man be and whatever he may possess, the pain which is essential to life cannot be thrown off. Pelides autem ejulavit intuitus in caelum latum. And again, Jovis quidem filius eram Saturnii verum arunam habebam infinitam. The ceaseless efforts to banish suffering accomplish no more than to make it change its form. It is essentially deficiency, want, care for the maintenance of life. If we succeed, which is very difficult, 
in removing pain in this form, it immediately assumes a thousand others, varying according to age and circumstances, such as lust, passionate love, jealousy, envy, hatred, anxiety, ambitious covetousness, sickness, etc., etc. If at last it can find entrance in no other form, it comes in the sad gray garments of tediousness and ennui, against which we then strive in various ways. If finally we succeed in driving this away, we shall hardly do so without letting pain enter in one of its earlier forms, and the dance begin again from the beginning. For all human life is tossed backwards and forwards between pain and ennui. Depressing as this view of life is, I will draw attention, by the way, to an aspect of it from which consolation may be drawn, and perhaps even a stoical indifference to one's own present ills may be attained. For our impatience at these arises from, for the most part from the fact that we regard them as brought about by a chain of causes which might easily be different. We do not generally grieve over ills which are directly necessary and quite universal. For example, the necessity of age and of death and many daily inconveniences. It is rather the consideration of the accidental nature of the circumstances that brought some sorrow just to us that gives it its sting. But if we have recognized that pain as such is inevitable and essential to life, and that nothing depends upon chance but its mere fashion, the form under which it presents itself, that thus our sorrow present fills a place that without it would at once be occupied by another which now is excluded by it, and that therefore fate can affect us little in what is essential. Such a reflection, if it were to become a living conviction, might produce a considerable degree of stoical equanimity and very much lessen the anxious care for our own well-being. But in fact, such a powerful control of reason over directly felt suffering seldom or never occurs. Besides, through this view of the inevitableness of pain, of the supplanting of one pain by another, and the introduction of a new pain through the passing away of that which preceded it, one might be led to the paradoxical but not absurd hypothesis that in every individual the measure of the pain essential to him was determined once for all by his nature, a measure which could neither remain empty nor be more than filled, however much the form of the suffering might change. Thus his suffering and well-being would by no means be determined from without, but only through that measure 
that natural disposition which indeed might experience certain additions and diminutions from the physical condition at different times, but yet on the whole would remain the same and would just be what is called the temperament, or more accurately, the degree in which he might be auculus and loculus, as Plato expresses it in the first book of the Republic, that is, in an easy or difficult mood. This hypothesis is supported not only by the well-known experience that great suffering makes all lesser ills cease to be felt, and conversely, that freedom from great suffering makes even the most trifling inconveniences torment us and put us out of humor. But experience also teaches that if a great misfortune, as the mere thought of which we shuddered, actually befalls us, as soon as we have overcome the first pain of it, our disposition remains for the most part on change, and conversely, that after the attainment of some happiness we have long desired, we do not feel ourselves on the whole and permanently very much better off and agreeably situated than before. Only the moment at which these changes occur affects us with unusual strength, as deep sorrow or exulting joy, but both soon pass away, for they are based upon illusion, for they do not spring from the immediately present pleasure or pain, but only from the opening up of our new future, which is anticipated in them. Only by borrowing from the future could pain or pleasure be heightened, so abnormally and consequently not enduringly. It would follow from the hypothesis advanced that a large part of the feeling of suffering and of well-being would be subjective and determined a priori, as is the case with knowing. And we may add the following remarks as evidence in favor of it. Human cheerfulness or dejection are manifestly not determined by external circumstances, such as wealth and position, for we see at least as many glad faces among the poor as among the rich. Further, the motives which induce suicide are so very different that we can assign no motive that is so great as to bring it about, even with great probability, in every character, and few that would be so small that the like of them had never caused it. Now, although the degree of our serenity or sadness is not at all times the same, yet in consequence of this view we shall not attribute it to the change of outward circumstances, but to that of the inner condition, the physical state. For when an actual though temporary increase of our serenity, even to the extent of joyfulness, takes place, it usually appears without any external occasion. It is true that we often see our pain arise only from some definite external relation and are visibly oppressed 
and saddened by this only. Then we believe that if only this were taken away, the greatest contentment would necessarily ensue. But this is illusion. The measure of our pain and our happiness is on the whole, according to our hypothesis, subjectively determined for each point of time. And the motive for sadness is related to that, just as a blister which draws to a head all the bad humors otherwise distributed is related to the body. The pain which is at that period of time essential to our nature and therefore cannot be shaken off would, without the definite external cause of our suffering, be divided at a hundred points and appear in the form of a hundred little annoyances and cares about things which we now entirely overlook because our capacity for pain is already filled by that chief evil which has concentrated in a point all the suffering otherwise dispersed. This corresponds also to the observation that if a great and pressing care is lifted from our breasts by its fortunate issue, another immediately takes its place, the whole material of which was already there before, yet could not come into consciousness as care, because there was no capacity left for it, and therefore this material of care remained indistinct, and unobserved in a cloudy form on the farthest horizon of consciousness. But now that there is room, this prepared material at once comes forward and occupies the throne of the reigning care of the day, Pritena Rusa. And if it is very much lighter in its matter than the material of the care which has vanished, it knows how to blow itself out so as apparently to equal it in size. And thus, as the chief care of the day completely fills the throne. Excessive joy and very keen suffering always occur in the same person, for they condition each other reciprocally and are also in common conditioned by great activity of the mind. Both are produced, as we have just seen, not by what is really present, but by the anticipation of the future. But since pain is essential to life, and its degree is also determined by the nature of the subject, sudden changes, because they are always external, cannot really alter its degree. Thus, an error and delusion always lies at the foundation of immoderate joy or grief, and consequently both these excessive strainings of the mind can be avoided by knowledge. Every immoderate joy, exultatio, insolence, laetitia, always rests on the delusion that one has found in life what can never be found there, lasting satisfaction of the harassing desires and cares which are constantly breeding new ones. 
From every particular delusion of this kind, one must inevitably be brought back later, and then when it vanishes, must pay for it with pain as blister as the joy its entrance caused was keen. So far, then, it is precisely like a height from which one can come down only by a fall. Therefore, one ought to avoid them, and every sudden excessive grief is just a fall from some such height, the vanishing of such a delusion, and so conditioned by it. Consequently, we might avoid them both if we had sufficient control over ourselves to survey things always with perfect clearness as a whole and in their connection, and steadfastly to guard against really lending them the colors which we wish they had. The principal effort of the Stoical ethics was to free the mind from all such delusion and its consequences, and to give it instead an equanimity that could not be disturbed. It is this insight that inspires every immoderate joy, exultatio insolens laetitia, always rest on the delusion that one has found in life what can never be found there, lasting satisfaction of the harassing desires and cares, which are constantly breeding new ones, and therefore does not flow in upon us from without, but that everyone carries about with him its perennial source in his own heart. We rather seek constantly for an external particular cause, as it were, a pretext for the pain which never leaves us, just as the free man makes himself an idol in order to have a master. For we unwearily strive from wish to wish, and although every satisfaction, however much it promised when attained, fails to satisfy us, but for the most part comes presently to be an error of which we are ashamed. Yet we do not see that we draw water with the sieve of the dynades, but ever hasten to new desires. Sed dum abes quod awemus id ex superere viditur caetera post alud cum contingit ilud awemus, et citis aqua tenet vitae semper gentis, Lucretius. Thus it either goes on forever, or what is more rare, and presupposes a certain strength of character, till we reach a wish which is not satisfied and yet cannot be given up. In that case we have, as it were, found what we sought, something that we can always blame, instead of our own nature, as the source of our suffering. And thus, although we are now at variance with our fate, 
we are reconciled to our existence. For the knowledge is again put far from us that suffering is essential to this existence itself and true satisfaction impossible. The result of this form of development is a somewhat melancholy disposition, the constant endurance of a single great pain, and the contempt for all lesser sorrows or joys that proceeds from it. Consequently, an already nobler phenomenon than that constant seizing upon ever new forms of illusion, which is much more common. End of Book 4, The World as Will, Sections 56 and 57.